If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We've been studying the book of James, which is a sermon in the form of a letter written to the believers who left Jerusalem and are scattered among the nations, as it says in the first verse. These believers to whom James is writing are Jewish. They know the Old Testament. They are from Judea. Perhaps some are from Galilee. They know the teachings of the apostles. Possibly they have even heard Jesus himself during his earthly ministry. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So the tone of his letter is pastoral. He was a pastor to them. It's marked by two things. The first are imperatives. Um, There are 108 verses in this book. There are 50 imperatives. That's like one for every two verses. But his purpose in this letter, and this is important, is not so much to inform. He will say time and time again, you know. In fact, they do know. His intent is to command them, to urge them, to exhort them as to what they should do. And while he's telling them what to do, it is in fact marked by affection. This is not a harsh dictator, but a loving pastor. He addresses his readers at least 15 times as either my brothers or my dear brothers. The structure of the sermon as I see it is chapter 1 is an extended introduction. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 are the three points of his sermon. And then chapter 5 is an extended conclusion. We are in the introduction. And what we've seen thus far is that James uses words and concepts that seemingly are familiar to his readers, but he uses them as they are meant to be used and not as his readers imagine them to be. He throws a curveball at them, if you wish. And in the introduction, he does it four separate times. We've seen three thus far. When he talks about joy, when he talks about trials, when he talks about wisdom. The first curveball is joy. Joy is not the same as happiness. It is the noun form of the verb rejoice, which was the driving theme of the feast that God had appointed for Israel to observe. In Numbers 10.10, they are called times of rejoicing. So the readers are with him thus far. They, yeah, they understand the whole idea of joy and rejoicing. Um, I think what they don't get is what he says later, right after this, is consider it pure joy. Okay, When you are ambushed by all different kinds of trials. This certainly is not what comes to mind when one thinks of joy. But joy is to be a present reality, as we've seen, that is anchored in the past, what God has done in the past. And certainly when they celebrate Passover, they remember God delivering their ancestors after four centuries of enslavement. But it also anticipates what God is going to do in the future, what he has promised to do. Well, in the meantime, we are in the present, and the present may seem rather difficult. Um, And to tell someone in difficult circumstances to have joy might seem cruel, but joy is past, present, and future. And the present may not be very pleasant, but God has done great things for us in the past, and he will in the future. And therefore, we are to consider it joy when we go through difficulties. After a bit of thought, I think perhaps James' original readers were like, okay, okay, we get that. Um, After all, the celebration of Passover was a celebration that marked the end of trials, the trials of enslavement. Um, And they might agree that we get that, that in the present, as difficult as circumstances may be, we are to be anchored in the past, what God has done for us, and what he has promised to do. Then James writes in verse number three, because you know, so there it is, you know, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The Jewish people certainly knew about trials. 
not only the time in Egypt, but then when they were in the promised land, time and time again, they turned away from God and foreign powers came in and took over. Um, and then the ten tribes to the north were taken into exile by the Assyrians. They're known as the ten lost tribes. And then the two tribes to the south, a century and a half later, are taken into exile. Um, they are, Cyrus brings them back to the promised land. But what Gia read to us from Daniel uh, speaks of difficulties that are going to come in the future. And yet the Jewish people persevered. There's a great line from Walker Percy uh, in his book, I think, Lost in the Cosmos. When was the last time you ran into a Hittite? Um, the Hittites are gone. The Jewish people remain. And so they have persevered. So this part they get. They know that, yes, life can be hard, but by God's grace, we will persevere. But here comes the second curveball, and that is trials. That is God's testing of his people. Yes, they've known difficult times. Um, but when James speaks of trials, he isn't merely speaking of negative things, of suffering, of difficulties. And I think this is what he means. If you look at verses 9, 10, and 11, he says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Both poverty and riches are tests. Um, and in fact, as we've seen, every aspect of our lives is a test. It isn't as though we go through life and we learn and learn and then here comes the test. So that we want to know, is this going to be on the test? Every aspect of our lives is in fact a test, a trial. Um, I don't think this is what his readers expect. For them, it means suffering. And, and indeed, trials can involve suffering. Um, I do find it interesting, if you think about it, that we are more likely to turn to God in difficult times, in trials of suffering, than we are in trials of the good life, the easy life, the hassle-free life. Verse number 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When we read this verse, do we imagine that this is someone who has endured suffering? I think it could. But could it not in fact include someone who has been gifted with abundance an abundance that has the potential to turn his or her eyes away from God. And in that sense, it becomes a temptation. It is a test. But have they continued to trust God? When one is undergoing a trial, wisdom is needed. We need to know what to do. And this is the third curveball that he throws at us, at his readers. James and his readers are familiar with what the Old Testament and what Jesus said about wisdom. In the Old Testament, there's plenty about wisdom, as we've seen. There are three wisdom books, Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Um, so what does the Old Testament tell us about wisdom? And how does it use that word? That's a good question. Think a minute. If everything in life is a test, everything, okay. riches, poverty, illness, good health, the, the list is endless. How are we supposed to keep up? It'd be nice if we could sort of go through life without any test and then here comes a test and we're ready to deal with it. But if everything is a test, and I would, I would insist that it is. How do we keep up? You can't turn around without being tested. 
What is one to do? How are we supposed to know what to do? In a word, wisdom. But how do you get this wisdom? Well, James tells us we are to ask God. If any of you lacks wisdom, and who doesn't, if everything is a test, then I think we lack wisdom to know what to do in each and every situation. He should ask God. I mentioned this last week, that Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, it's chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is toward the end of chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is hearing the words of Jesus, which are based on the Old Testament, and are repeated by the apostles and putting them into practice. Putting them into practice. And this, I think, is the key to the whole book. James is writing to people who know, who have heard the words of Jesus, and they are not putting them into practice. Otherwise, as James says a bit earlier in chapter 1, you're a doubter. You're a double-minded person. You are in two minds. Look, if you would, at verses 6, 7, and 8. But when he asks, he must believe, that is, when you're asking for wisdom, believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. James has just told us that God is generous. If you need wisdom, ask God, and God is generous, and he gives generously. His sincerity is unquestioned. He is single-minded. He is generous. And that's not the case with us. Oftentimes we doubt we are double-minded. That is to say, we believe and disbelieve at the same time. We're in two minds. But we need to be careful. Belief and not believing are not simply mental activities. That we're sort of schizophrenic in our thinking, that we believe and don't believe at the same time. I think there is that aspect of it. But belief is tied to actions. James is not putting forward belief as simply mental assent. And a trial is not merely or simply a mental exercise. He's not thinking about, he's not writing about thinking two different ways at the same time. He's talking about how we act. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we cannot serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Belief means acting as though God exists. Unbelief is living as though God does not exist. Being a practical atheist, an atheist in our practice. It is a real temptation for a believer to say, I believe these things, but then to go and act as though God does not exist. So if you are asking God for wisdom, you should ask believing living as though God exists, um, and you look to him and him alone for wisdom. And Jesus says that we can't serve two masters, and he, he talks about the impossibility of it. Because in reality, if we are in belief and unbelief at the same time, uh, in many ways, unbelief sort of trumps. It, it, takes a, it takes a day because we're living as though God does not exist. We turn away from him and make decisions on our own. But James is more concerned with the consequences. That if we are in two minds, 
we in fact our prayer is impaired you shouldn't believe that God's going to answer your prayer because you're you're acting as though he does not exist and we will be unstable in all that we do so when trials come we have a choice we can obey and then persevere become mature and have life or on the other hand we can disobey give in to our desires sin is the result and then comes death at the close of the section that we were looking at last Sunday and we are today James reminds us that God is the giving God in verse number 5 who gives generously to all without finding fault which is an astounding statement a sermon in of that God gives generously without finding fault that is grace but look if you would at verses 17 and 18 every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created so so far we've reviewed we've looked at the three curved balls that James has thrown at us but particularly at his original readers today we come to the fourth curveball and I will tell you what it is uh, in a bit look if you would at verses 19 through 25 this is our passage today and notice how he starts my dear brothers take note of this everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. It might seem to a casual reader that, that James has shifted gear. He's made a right turn, that he's, he's changed the subject drastically. But in fact, if you look at verse number 18, he talks about that God gave us birth through the word. In verse number 21, he talks about the word planted in you. Verse 22, he speaks of the word. Do not merely listen to the word. In verse 23, he says anyone who listens to the word. And then in verse number 25, he shifts from word to the law, which I think he means the same thing. Um, there are three distinct responses to the word that God speaks. First of all, we are to hear, we are to listen, we are to receive it, and then we are to obey it. So he says, he starts out by saying, my dear brothers, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen. It calls with, well, he begins to tie things together in a way perhaps that we had not imagined. Um, we saw in verse number 18 that the Father has caused his light to shine in our hearts and has enabled us, he's given us life and enabled us to hear the word of truth. So there is light, word, and then there is birth. This birth is a once for all thing. Conversion is a once for all event. Um, now that we have life, we've been born again we do not need to have that repeated over and over again we have life okay we're here we have life the life that God has given us now what we need to do is listen 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 so he begins by saying everyone should be quick to listen one might object um, yes but he continues slow to speak and slow to become angry. 
Now, I think when we read these, these words, we might think that he's talking about our, our dealings with one another, our dealings with our fellow human beings. That, in fact, we should listen to people, we should be careful, you know, we should be slow to speak and slow uh, to answer them, and certainly slow to become angry. I would suggest that there is something more than that. He's talking about our relationship to Scripture, our relationship to the truth. God has revealed himself in his word, in his truth, and we are to listen. We are to listen. Yes, it is important how we treat other people. Okay? But I think what James is telling us here is that we need to listen to the truth. And a subset of that is we need to listen to our fellow human beings. But it begins with us listening to God's truth. It is, in fact, when we listen to God's truth that we are being trained to listen to others, to have a disposition where we are ready to listen to others, where we have a disposition that we control what we say, and that we are cautious about anger. If we listen to scripture, it trains us in this regard. If we develop an attentive spirit as we listen to God's speaking to us through scripture, then in fact, we will be better prepared in our dealings with our fellow human beings. Now we want to be careful because someone might say, if I spend time in the word, that means I can't really deal with human beings, other people. You know, I'm busy spending time in the word. Um, Remember the two great commandments? We are to love the Lord our God and we are to love our neighbors ourselves. Our love for God is seen in our loving our neighbor. We can't say, oh, I love God, I just can't stand people. Uh, that, that doesn't work. Uh, God we have not seen. Our neighbors are there physically with us and we are in fact to love our neighbors. In the same way, we listen to God and that is to be reflected in the fact that we listen to other people. I don't know if you have this difficulty. I, something I have to fight myself is that when someone is speaking to me, I'm not really listening, I'm preparing an answer. Um, and so when they finally stop, then I can give a response. Uh, I don't know that we do that when it comes to scripture. Do we read scripture and like, we're like, I'm, I'm thinking of an answer. I think we should listen and, and listen carefully. And if we do that, I think we are trained in how we are to deal with other people. You will notice, however, well, let me just say one thing here. Someone has noted that the great talker is rarely a great listener. And anger is often a reflection of closed ears. You will notice that James does not say, these aren't absolutes, he doesn't say, never speak. He doesn't say, never be angry. He does say that, you know, that some kind of anger does not bring about the righteous life that God deserves, or desires. Um, it might have been easier if, if he had made these absolutes. Never speak, never get angry. And, but he doesn't say that. He says we should be slow to speak and slow to become angry. Both James and Paul, and I mention Paul here because so many people say, oh, James and Paul are in opposition. They, in fact, talk about the possibility of righteous anger. Interestingly enough, in Ephesians 4, Paul quotes Psalm 4. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So there is the possibility of righteous anger. I think if we could talk to James and to Paul, and if we would just talk to ourselves, we would, we would come to see that righteous anger is, yeah, that's not something that's very common in our lives. We may call it righteous anger 
oh, I have righteous anger. But it's just, it's just selfish anger. Anger is not a wholesome emotion. It's usually covered with self-importance, self-assertion, intolerance, and stubbornness, and many other things. Okay? There is such a thing as holy anger. I don't think we have it as much as we imagine we do. So we are to listen. Okay? The second thing is we are to receive. Okay? We are to hear God's word and we are to receive it. Humbly accept the word, he tells us in verse number 24. And in this verse, if you look at verse number, exactly verse 21, uh, James deals with four aspects of receiving. How do you receive it? First of all, the proper preparation. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Secondly, the right attitude, that is humility. What you are to receive is the word planted in you. So in a real sense, it's already in you. And then thirdly, the expected result, which can save you. James is using a very agrarian, a very agricultural uh, metaphor here, that you're preparing the soil for a seed. So the first thing you do is you prepare yourself to receive the word. And you do this by getting rid of the weeds, getting rid of all moral filth, uh, that which taints and devalues. Get rid of that which is wrong, that is evil. And if you're a gardener at all, uh, I know a little bit about it, not, not that much, but weeds are something that you have to deal with all the time. You can't say, well, I weeded yesterday and so I'm good for the next month or so. Yeah, go back tomorrow and see what you find. So this is something that is an ongoing process. Day by day, we are to put off sin, filth, evil. Hebrews 12.1, a familiar verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. In 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So first of all, prepare yourself to receive God's truth. Secondly, do so with humility. Again, familiar verses from Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We are, in fact, to be humble as we come to Scripture. I, I find it amazing how often that is not the case because we have all our own presuppositions, our own ideas, and humility is often lacking. John Calvin described humility as the mind disposed to learn. You're ready to learn. We have teachers among us today, and I think they would all testify that there's nothing more irritating than a student who wants, his, who wants to teach the teacher, who's not prepared to learn. We need to come to Scripture humbly. And then thirdly, he says, the word has already been planted. And, and what does this mean? Interestingly enough, this is the only time in the New Testament that the word planted appears. I, that's shocking. I, I was really surprised, particularly in the parables of Jesus, you know, when he talked, you know, all the uh, agrarian parables. It's the only time that it's used. That, in fact, has been planted in us. And I think to understand what is meant here, we go back to the promise made in Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts, or in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus, in fact, fulfilled this. Exile was ended, and now he has brought the good news to people who were in exile. 
But you might say this really doesn't answer the question, what does it mean to have the word planted in us? I think what James wants his readers and us to remember is that God keeps his promises. He has kept his promise by sending his son. That he has planted his word in us, in James' original readers. And the word is now a permanent part of them. So we have, in fact, received the word. We've prepared the soil. We've received it. And hopefully with humility, um, it's, it's already there with us. The problem is we're not listening. He has given us his spirit who communicates to us the person of Jesus. As Paul wrote more than once, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The fourth thing he says, and this might trouble us a bit, he says, which can save you? It's like, wait a minute, I I thought I was already saved. I I thought I was already a child of God because the word's been planted in me. He has given me birth through the word. I I, I thought I was a believer. I thought I was a child of God. Um, James is not speaking of conversion. He's pointing to the reality that once we become the children of God, God gives us birth. We now live a life. And God continues to work in our lives. It's not as though we're born, we become Christians, we're like, well, that's it. Project is finished. I'm perfect. Everything's done. It is, in fact, an ongoing process. And that's why we have trials which lead to perseverance, to maturity. That's what God intends for us to do. So we are to listen, we are to receive the word, and we are to obey it. This is verses 22 to 25. I'll read them again, follow along. Verse 22 is the key verse for this whole book, by the way. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. One could argue, I think unsuccessfully, but one could argue that up to this point, what James has talked about in this section has been passive, that we are to listen, that we are to humbly receive the word. Um, I think listening requires more effort sometimes than speaking. Uh, We are to listen. We are to receive the word of God. Now James says what we have to do, and that is we are to be doers of the word. Don't merely listen to it. If that's all you're doing, you're deceiving yourself. Do what it says. And then he gives us two examples of what we should not be like. We shouldn't be like in the words of Jesus, the foolish man who built on the sand. But here he talks about someone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. He's like someone who looks in a mirror and then leaves and promptly forgets what he looks like. Um, James isn't talking about sort of glancing in a mirror, you know, see if your part's straight, you know, if your hair is okay. Um, Rather, it is a lack of reflection. Uh, Obviously, you have a reflection in the mirror, but there, there is not this idea of concentration, of thinking, um, of looking intently. So if you wish, it's like you read, you read a chapter in the Bible and you go away and that's it. You don't put it into practice. You say, well, I, I read that. Isn't that wonderful? And I'm going to get on with my life now. Uh, no, we are to do what it says. So we should be like the person who has heard the word and does what it says. He's like someone who looks intently into the law. Um, James is not promoting narcissism. Okay, He's using an analogy here. He's talking about focusing on what it says and putting it into practice. And here comes the fourth curveball in the introduction. And it is the word 
freedom. The perfect law that gives freedom. I think the average person, if you would say, are law and freedom related? Are they synonyms? People would say, no. The law stops you from doing what you want to do. Uh, and freedom says you can do whatever you want. Um, it is the perfect law that gives freedom. God's law is perfect. It tells us who he is. It also tells us who we are. And it is perfect in what it does. And it is freedom in that it gives to those, well, originally the law was given to those who had just been set free. Israel had been freed in the Exodus. They go to Sinai and there they are given the law. They are those who have been set free. They are now free. And the law isn't given to say, okay, now you're in bondage again. It's a different kind of bondage you were to the, to the Egyptians and now you are enslaved again. It is given to people who have been set free to tell them how to live like free people. If you can imagine for 400 years your people being slaves and now you're free, I would suggest to you, you may not know how to act. How does a free person act? I only know how to act like a slave. And so the law was given to them to show them how they should act. It was there to show them, this is what it means to be a human being. As a slave, you were treated as less than human. God delivered you out of bondage. This is what a human being is supposed to live like. This is what it means to be a human being. This is what it means to be free. Uh, the end of last year, we looked at the Ten Commandments. And we saw that the first five commandments present us with the true nature of things. This is reality. There is only one God. I am the Lord your God. God is the Spirit. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. God's name reveals who he truly is. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And God created time as a gift. He is the creator and he created time. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And God gave us life as a gift. Honor your father and your mother. It is through our parents that we have life. Um, some people have said that the first five commandments deal with our relationship to God and the second five with our relationship to our fellow human beings. Um, that's possible, but I, I prefer to take them as, as a whole, the Ten Commandments. But it continues. It gives us the nature of reality. Life is a gift. Okay? We're told that, you know, honor your father and your mother. Life is a gift. Therefore, don't take somebody's life. Do not commit murder. Marriage is a gift, which you are to treasure and not destroy. Do not commit adultery. That which you have belongs to you, not to another. What somebody else has belongs to them and not to you. Do not steal. The truth is a gift. So don't bear false witness. Desires are a gift. Don't have the wrong desires. Do not covet. So what is freedom? Freedom is the ability to realize who you are as a human being. I don't think that's what most people think of freedom today. Um, people believe that freedom is choosing to do what you want. And freedom is not that. Freedom is not choosing. Freedom is choosing well. And how do you know what is the right thing to choose? If you lack wisdom, ask God. God has given his law, and so his law gives you freedom. Uh, I'm reminded, uh, this is years ago, that Anne Armenta told us about Hosea, their oldest son, that on his fourth birthday, he woke up and he asked her, he said, am I four years old today? 
And she said, yes, you are. And he said, I can do whatever I want. Uh, to him, being four meant he was free to do whatever he wanted. No. It is the law that tells us how it is we are to choose and how we choose well. It is the perfect law of liberty. Remember, James is giving imperatives. He's preaching, basically. And he's telling his former members who have moved away how they, in fact, are to live. He's not merely giving them information. He's telling them what they must do. And I would submit to you that what he's telling them isn't new. They know this. They know this. They've just forgotten or neglected to remember. James, in this introduction, paints a picture of life in which all of what we experience in life is a test. It's all a trial. Something that tests our faith. Will we trust God? Or will we not? If we believe God, we will obey him and we will endure in our obedience. If we do not believe God, we will believe something else and we will be deceived and give in to our own desires. If we believe and disbelieve at the same time, we are going to be unstable individuals. As in the prayer of confession, we are God's temple and yet we turn our backs on him and bow to something else. I mentioned this years ago when we first went through James, that um, I don't hear it as much today. People used to wear bracelets that had the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, I, I, I don't want to criticize such people. I, I do want to commend them for taking this to heart, to think carefully about the actions that they take, the choices that they make, the words that they speak. But I would suggest to you that a far better thing to ask is, what did Jesus do? Jesus was God in the flesh. He lived among us. We're given an account in the Gospels of his life. What did he do? I think it's a far better question to ask because it takes um, the respons responsibility but also the, uh, the authority to make a decision. We're like, what would Jesus do? Hmm, let me think. I will make a pronouncement. No, read the Gospels. What, in fact, did Jesus do? We live in a modern or postmodern world, take your pick, um, and Jesus lived in the first century, um, first century Palestine. It's a radically different time. Um, so if you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Um, you know, what kind of car would he own? Well, that really doesn't compute. But if you ask yourself, what did he do in his dealings with people? Then that makes us a little uncomfortable because the answer is right in front of us. It requires that we know what Jesus did. It requires that we know the Gospels. And I'm amazed how little people know of the Gospels. It's all there, and yet it seems that people know so little about it. If I ask what would Jesus do, I don't have to know the Gospels. If I ask what did Jesus do, then obviously I have to. And, by the way, it means that we need to know the New Testament and the Old Testament because they all point to Jesus. It's not a theoretical formula, if you wish. Um, but it is, in fact, the truth of Scripture based on a person, that is, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus lived the law. In the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, I, I think we see the Gospels and maybe Acts as sort of historical accounts, but then we get to the epistles and that's the theology of things. But in fact, what they are are various portraits of Jesus and what Jesus did, in fact, do. The best example is perhaps the most familiar is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, something that's read at weddings, usually. Not, not too often other times. Um, 
people see it as a definition of love. I think, in fact, it is a portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. This is Jesus. This is how Jesus lived. This is what Jesus did. This is how he lived his life. If we take this approach, when we read James telling us about the choice, suffering, endurance, perfection, and again, perhaps not suffering, let's play trial, not just suffering, trial, endurance, perfection, desire, sin, and death, we can think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Matthew begins his account with, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. And then we read, after 40 days and nights, he was hungry. One of the great understatements found in Scripture. But the point should be clear, Jesus had the desire to eat. And who wouldn't after 40 days and 40 nights without food? But then Satan came to Jesus to tempt him to turn stones into bread. What could be wrong with that? Um, After all, he is hungry. But it is through this first temptation and the two that follow it that we see that they have one thing in common, and that is take the shortcut. Take the shortcut. Don't do the long haul. Take the shortcut. Get food now. Prove who you are now. Jump off the temple and the angels will catch you and everyone will know who you are. Get the world without suffering. Worship me and I will give you the nations. After all, if you think about it, why spend the next three years plus with people who are fundamentally flawed? who won't understand what you are saying. They won't get it. They want your miracles, but they don't want you. Take the shortcut. James tells us that in the face of life, trials and all, we are to endure, we are to persevere, and not to allow desire to tempt us to take the shortcut which will in fact lead to sin and then to death. We should follow the example of Jesus. So when we read the New Testament and all the admonitions, we shouldn't think about it, oh, this is a list of do's and don'ts. I want to know what I should do or what I shouldn't do. And for some people, they think, well, it's just basically trying to make me miserable. It's, it's telling me not to do the things I want to do. And it, it just is almost cruel. No. They are telling us what it means to follow the example of Jesus and what Jesus did. Now, let's be clear. There's a world of difference between us and Jesus. He was perfect, and we are broken. We are sinners. We are flawed As Bob Dylan put it in one of his songs, born already ruined. (laughs) We come into the world and we're a mess already. Yes, the apostles knew that very well. They expressed it quite, quite well. That's why they wrote the letters that they did, because we don't automatically do what Jesus did. Yes, the word has been implanted in us, but we don't always listen, we don't always receive it humbly, And as James is writing this sermon, we don't do what we are supposed to do. It's fascinating if you think about it. Jesus came into the world to reveal the Father. He came in to give us the good news. And without a doubt, he had a lot to say. But I am struck by, if you read the Gospels, you should be as well. How many times he was silent? Not, during his, not just during his passion, you know, when they were like, are you the son of God? Tell us. No, throughout his ministry. I'm struck by his desire to listen and to ask questions. I'm also surprised at how much ink other people got. 
that it's not just about Jesus. But in some ways we shouldn't be surprised because this is what we see of God in the Old Testament. We've talked about this a number of times. How many times Jesus does in the Gospels, God does in the Old Testament, ask questions to which they very well know the answers. Beginning with Adam, where are you? Why did you hide yourself? Why are you afraid? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? And then with their first son, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Where is your brother Abel? What have you done? We find in God and in Jesus, his son, listening. And we are to listen. But then we are to put into practice what we have heard. The key verse, I'm convinced, the book of James, is verse number 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And that's what the book of James is about. And Lord willing, we will see this as we continue our study. Let's pray together. Our Father, how gracious and generous you are to us. You give without finding fault, which is amazing. But equally amazing is how often, how often we don't listen. We don't pay attention. We are not humble. We are quick to speak quick to become angry. We see that in our dealings with our neighbors, with people we see every day. And we forget that it in fact is a reflection of our relationship to you. Thank you for saving us, for implanting your word in us. May we by your grace get rid of moral filth. May we listen humbly and may we do what it says. I thank you for the book of James, much neglected, but it speaks to us all these centuries later. May your spirit drive its truths home to our hearts. I thank you for bringing us together today. We remember Ori Francisco and our prayers we pray for good results that the doctors would find out what's going on with her kidneys and, and find a solution to that. For each one of us, as we walk through the world in the coming week, give us wisdom. May we look to you for wisdom, knowing that we are poor in spirit and we lack wisdom. And may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We also pray for Oscar as he starts college tomorrow, that you would guide him in all that he does. Thank you for your grace and your love. And thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.